Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the It Depends on the Price of the Bonds edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon, and I am joined as ever by Emily Peck of the Huffington Post. Hello. Hello, and Anna Shemansky. Hello. And we have like a weird and wonderful group of stories for you this week. We are going to be talking about Secondhand clothes in Rwanda. Obviously, this is a major story in the global economy, but it kind of is. And I kind of have been wanting to talk about Rwanda for a while. So this is our excuse to talk about Rwanda. We are going to talk about pregnant women in the workplace, which is there's new news on that front. But first, I think, Emily... Can you tell me about the Koch brothers and le- and transit? Uh, what is the co- okay? Yes, just there was this story which confused <laughs> me, but you can explain it. I think I can explain it. It ran in the New York Times this week. It was about the Koch brothers and how they're funding efforts to basically squash public transportation projects across the country. It, the New York Times piece focused on Nashville, which had this like $5.4 billion um, package it was going to do on public transit. It was like some light rail, a little tunnel, a little bus, and everyone thought it was a sure thing, slam dunk kind of a project. But then the Koch brothers got involved. So Nashville, it turns out, is a massive city. It's not some little music town. It's got like three or four million people and it's growing fast. Mm -hmm. And like any fast-growing city, it needs to invest in transit because you can't just grow without transit. That's silly for city. Oh, but the Koch brothers and their group, Americans for Prosperity, very much do think you can grow without public transit. Um, so they went around arguing that public transit was basically bad and this package was bad because it would increase sales tax in Nashville by one percentage point, which... Side note, sales tax in Nashville is actually very high. It's like 9.5%, which I was kind of surprised by, but maybe you can explain to me why that is in a 
I feel like local taxes, it's always just a choice. Some jurisdictions like sales tax, some jurisdictions have an income tax, some jurisdictions have a property tax, some so like New York it, has all income. three. Yeah. <laughs> like, but you um but you just like some you dial down and some you dial up. I don't think you can look at one on their own. Yeah. And and one of the interesting things in this article was that they pointed out that it's not just that the Koch brothers are coming in and kind of doing their normal shtick. They're actually using fairly sophisticated data to try to target vot- voters and try to target cities where they think they can stir up certain divisions in order to squash these public transit programs. And I think it's it's one other quick thing. I think it's important to remember when you're talking about the Koch brothers is that they make a lot of money when there are more people driving and there are more roads. So So explain that. What's their financial interest in quashing transit and and encouraging roads and cars? Well, being an energy (laughs) primarily. Well, I believe Coke Industries are responsible for like asphalt and seatbelts. Yes, and gasoline (laughs) and and tires and other auto parts. So, yeah, most things in a car. Things in a car. And (laughs) and so what they did is they came out with what turns out to have been a very effective campaign against against public transit, and they won. And part of the thing which I found fascinating about this is that on the one hand – Obviously, Nashville needs transit. All cities need transit. If you you can't really have density without transit, um, public if, transit. Yeah, and so and so this is a sad day in the history of Nashville. On the other hand, I kind of agree with them on light rail. Like light rail is is yeah. kind of a boondoggle everywhere you find it it's always incredibly expensive and it never seems to transport very many people and you're like why does everyone want light rail it looks glamorous but it doesn't actually achieve very much no it's like de blasio streetcar it makes very little sense but the other piece of it was uh, a bus it was like a widening a tunnel so that public the, the buses didn't have to go in the clogged congested yeah. highways i thought yeah, that, 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 that sounded smart sense. and i do think it depends on where you're located in terms of which type of transit makes sense. And when you're talking about public transit, I do think it's important that we recognize that all cities are different. They're, they're laid out in different ways. Their populations have different needs. They have different tax structures, different financing. So I do think, obviously, certain public transportation may make more sense in, in certain cities than in others. I tend to normally be a big supporter of public transit, especially as someone who doesn't drive. But I do think it's understandable that all cities should have to consider whether this makes sense or not. But I think the key is a lot of the areas that the Cokes have been focusing on are areas where transit really would be necessary. I know one of the things in the article that jumped out to me was that in Southeast Michigan, this is I happen (laughs) to be from Southeast Michigan. And I know that there is very little public transportation. And interestingly, when Amazon said that they weren't going to choose Detroit for their H2Q, they specifically pointed out the lack of public transportation in that area, specifically connecting Ann Arbor and Detroit. I thought one other thing that was interesting is the in the piece was how craven the um, the people talking about these issues are um, and how sinister. Like they mentioned this one fellow from the Cato Institute that is helping this effort, and he is making basically opposing arguments about gentrification. And so in Nashville, they argued that if they improved public transportation, it would lead to gentrification of the city, right? And it would make things harder for minorities and uh, lower income people who live there, they would get pushed out, whatever. We know what gentrification is. I don't have to keep going on. And then in San Francisco, where I guess they were opposing public transportation also, they argued and this they argued that 
the BART, the you know the railway system there, is responsible for increases in crime because young men do crime on the BART. It was like <laughs> the most racist argument I've seen, and it just was interesting interesting to see how they sort of like played with that issue from location to location. It just shows like how hollow. I don't know. The, the, and their will, beliefs seem to be a little bit craven. It's just about more money for auto parts. And it's actually important because the racism and playing into racism is often a big part of campaigns around public transit. I especially know this, again, in the Michigan context, which yeah. is something I'm very familiar with. But it's something that comes in very often that you have a lot of people who are opposed to public transit will go into predominantly white communities and play up this idea mm-hmm. that if you increase public transit, they don't explicitly say it. They use those coded terms, mm-hmm. but it's very clear what they're actually talking yeah. about. And, 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 and I, grew up, I grew up in the suburbs of South London. And anyone who has spent much time in London knows that the tube... London Underground is a great way to get around North London, north of the river, and a kind of crappy way to get around and then anywhere south of the river. And no one really understands why, because London is pretty much 50-50. And it basically turns out that, at least in my little neck of the woods, they're back in the Victorian days when they wanted to extend the Victoria line to Dulwich, where I grew up. Like, it was exactly, it wasn't like white brown racist, but it was basically the same sort of class arguments were made that if we made it easier for poor poor people to come here, then there would be more poor people here. And they mm-hmm. they were going to extend the, the London Underground and they didn't. And so then I was I wound up, you know, not being on the tube when I was growing up. And That's that was so sad. sad. Um but this is but literally this goes back to, you know, it goes back 120 years, the, these kind of arguments. Um, and it's kind of sad that we haven't really advanced. It's very that. sad. It reminded me of um, the power broker, you know. The, yeah, Robert Moses. And um, when Robert Moses was engineering the um, the Southern State Parkway on Long Island, famously in the power broker, he made the um, the overhead, uh, which, what you call them? The overhead. Elevated. The, the basically he made it so that buses couldn't go. Oh, the bridges! Yes. Yeah, yeah. Bridges. You're, you're, you have low bridges on the way to <laughs> the beaches, so yes. that you can't have brown people on the beaches. Yes, yes. exactly. And the same thing. Um, he, apparently, he was modeling it on Westchester County, which has similar problems. So, I guess the question which I have is like: on the one hand, you can see how a couple of um, cartoon villains like the Koch brothers um, would fund these kind of things, but question which I have is like, how do they find these fresh-faced volunteers to go out and knock on doors who seem like quite young and like vaguely normal? And how do they get actually get a majority of the population of a city to agree with them? Because the one thing we learned, you know, certainly in the last presidential election was that every single municipality with more than about, I think, 45,000 people in America voted for Clinton. Like cities are by their nature left wing, progressive, pro, you know, equality, pro transit. How do you get a city to vote against these things? Well, if you're, it depends on explicitly what you mean by a city and what you're thinking of as a city, because some of these transit projects are in areas that are a bit more spread out. And I'm going to just keep talking about Southeast Michigan apparently today, but the one of the counties that was um, actually killed the bill that the Cokes had been against in Southeast Michigan was Macomb County, which is very well known as the county that essentially gave Michigan to Trump. 
So I guess when you're looking at some of these projects, I would be interested to see exactly where they're going and who exactly are the people who right, are voting exactly. against. Exactly. So it, it becomes a little bit like the, you know, like the Rob Ford syndrome. It's not the, the city center which votes against it. It's the exurbs and the, you know, the people mm-hmm. who don't want, who, who are happy with their backyards. Yeah. And if you also look at some of the language that was used when they asked people, they were like, the questions were like, they, they were so heavily worded in terms of making it sound like this was, you know, basically nothing but a tax boondoggle. So you can understand that if you're talking to people, especially if you're talking to people who may not follow politics very closely and you say, like, do you want to vote to increase your sales tax to be the highest in the nation? Most people are going to be like, no. <laughs> yeah. And there is something about the rhetoric. Like there was one quote I wrote down um, from one of these guys that was public transit goes against the liberties Americans hold dear. Which we all think in this room, we think that's ridiculous. But if you think about it, like that whole ethos of Americans getting on the highway in their cars and their, you know, gas guzzling cars and just taking it on the road. That's kind of true. Like a lot of Americans might actually believe that. Ring on the millennials. That's what I say. (laughs) Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, Emily, we're coming back to you again. Hi. What's what's the latest news on on what happens to women when they get pregnant? Well, then they have babies nine <laughs> months later, Felix. But um, no, the New York Times wrote, again, a, a really great piece, really um, in-depth piece on pregnancy discrimination, which doesn't get a lot of attention even now during the Me Too era when we talk about sexual discrimination. Um, but basically from Walmart to Wall Street – when women get pregnant and they have a job, they basically hit what the Times called cleverly the maternal wall. There's widespread discrimination. Sometimes it's blatant, like these Walmart workers, they tell their boss, I'm pregnant, I can't lift this stuff anymore. And the boss is like, oh, it's too bad. Lift the stuff, you know. Um, and they, some of the women in the piece had miscarriages. Or you might work at a company, I think Merck was named in the piece, where you get pregnant and there's great maternity leave and they're super happy to tell you all about their female-friendly policies. But, like, you come back to work and you you just never get promoted. You watch everyone around you get promoted and you're like, that's weird. Yeah, and um, your bosses are like, well, she doesn't want to get a promotion uh-huh. because she has kids. She has kids yeah. at home. She She's, you know, really bogged down. And um, and this is becoming an increasing problem. There are uh, there's like a record number of um, pregnancy discrimination claims filed at the EEOC. That's the federal agency that handles um, civil rights charges and stuff like that. And um, I, I don't see it getting better. I hear these stories all the time. It's Walmart. It's Merck. It's I wrote a piece a while ago about a cop in Alabama that was really the Times mentioned incredibly mistreated. Like she came back to work and. Um, her vest was like it was too tight and she was still breastfeeding and her they like wouldn't help her find a new uniform. And that's like really important when you're like a beat cop and you're a 12 hour shift and you have to like change into new uniforms. They couldn't do it for her. It's just 
crazy. Well, and I think it's because I imagine if there had been a guy who had like gained a bunch of weight, they probably would have given him a new vest. Oh, for sure. This is something I found so disturbing in the Times article was that they showed that a lot of these companies were all in favor of giving accommodations to men. When they had issues, like they had a or even an like other or, disabled women, it's like it's specifically pregnancy, pregnancy is the yeah. only thing which you which doesn't get the same accommodations that virtually any other you know. Well, there's thing this that, famous um, the the Supreme Court case Young versus UPS it was about Peggy Young worked at UPS. She got pregnant. They wouldn't accommodate her. She she needed like light duty work basically, and uh, it came out in the um, in the case that. Men, male drivers at UPS who had DUIs, right? So they couldn't drive because they had driven drunk and their licenses were suspended. They were given light duty. But she, a pregnant woman, which is arguably a good thing, right? (laughs) She did not get the light duty. I just I always found that one such a good example of what you were saying. Yeah. If you're thinking of things we want to incentivize in the economy, do we want to incentivize people having children or do we want to incentivize people driving drunk? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I might have a a question here which is the kind of you know the solutions chapter bit of it because if you look at companies like Merck or the you know the ones with the good parental leave and the female friendly workplaces and everything you have you know official policies from HR which are all exactly more or less what the official policies should be and then you know on the ground where you have the managers both female and male managers by the way like do this kind of discrimination it's not just men discriminating against women um it turns out that they make these kind of idiotic assumptions about what mothers and pregnant women want or what they can do and that kind of thing and so what kind of actions can a company take to prevent this from happening at the sort of manager by manager level? Um, That's a really good question because it's such a variety of things happening. There's a lot of like unconscious bias, I think, that goes on that that leads women to not get promotions or not even get asked to travel for a business trip. Um, I think you can message this by promoting like a pregnant lady once in a while. Like I've worked in places where, you know, a woman is pregnant and gets a big promotion and it, it sends like a really strong message um you don't have to say anything it just everyone sees like oh this is possible um and you know i think you just message it throughout the culture in in little ways like that so i i have a few examples in my head of um pregnant women getting big promotions like for instance jacinda arden in in new zealand like it's a very nice promotion (laughs) like like for instance who who, yeah she became the prime minister of new zealand that's a good big job um marissa mayer when she was a Yahoo um, became CEO like as she was pregnant, basically. Um, like uh, my ex boss, Christian Freeland, who's now the um, foreign minister of Canada, got a big promotion at Thomson Reuters when she was pregnant. But the the thing which they have in common is they tend to be these like ultra powerful, ultra successful women who take off about like ten seconds of maternity leave and then come back, sort of more capable than ever and everyone kind of looks at them in awe and on the one hand it sets uh it sends a message like yay pregnant women can do these big jobs but on the other 
message. It kind of sends this message of you need to be this superhuman woman. I think that's a really good point. I think at the high end, people are facing a lot of bias. So like the examples of the high powered women kind of maybe are helpful. But like for the women of Walmart, it doesn't matter. So you need really a lot better policies and laws. Like even the current um, anti the Pregnancy Discrimination Act doesn't really say you have to give accommodations to pregnant women. It simply says you can't deny them the same kinds of accommodations you give to other workers. So it's not a very strong law. And um, a lot of companies actually don't have very good maternity leave or other policies. So I think you got ha- you kind of have to drill down company by company and like fix stuff. And at the same time, at the policy level, you have to amp up. Right. Because I think I very much agree with you that I think I don't think it makes sense to leave this to a company by company level. I think you need national laws. Mm. So there's a level playing field where it is required that reasonable accommodations are made for pregnant women. But going back to the point you were making in terms of whether women who are high powered should immediately go back or shouldn't go back, I think it's really tough because... Oh, I'm not saying they were wrong to go back. No, no, no. I I know, but it's complicated because on the one hand, it's true. You want to make it clear that women can take a reasonable amount of time off after they have a child. But then it's also complicated because if you're running a company, that may not be as reasonable as for most people. I think one thing which does need to happen, uh, one thing which can happen at big companies is compulsory paternity leave. Um, And like when Mark Zuckerberg took, what was it, four months off when he had a kid, like that sent an important message Mm. too actually only took two out of four months available. Oh. I don't, yeah, and I don't know. There's a part of me, when it comes to the compulsory leave, it rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I understand that if you don't make a compulsory, just like nobody's going to take it, but then... I, I don't mean, know. Men like, get shamed if you don't if you don't make it compulsory. It's going to oh, be totally really make hard. It shamed. Yeah. Like I, I've spoken to men, and especially like in finance and in banks, like no one takes the yeah. paternity leave, and if they do, everyone talks about you, and you're just you're ashamed for it. I mean, men have filed lawsuits because of the discrimination involved. So if you did do that, I think it would a level the playing field and b allow men who want to take paternity leave to to actually take it. I guess I. <laughs> Wow. No, I just I, wants everyone to work all the time. Wow. It's kind of true. No, I, I no, no. Like trying to come up with the best argument of why I, no I, I just argument. think part of it and I think this is a it's a it's complicated in the United States because I do think and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I'm saying the United States does have a different culture on work than many other countries. And so I don't know how well this policy would be accepted or how well it would actually whether it would actually even work because you could tell people that it needed to be compulsory and then they'd st- and then men would still work because they're no I'm sure I'm, you would just work and you'd send your boss emails and then you're the good worker I just have a very hard mm. time thinking that America's entire culture is just going to change overnight I don't think that's going to happen right but we can definitely make efforts to move in that direction and what we're talking about in a world of unconscious bias is how do you address those unconscious biases? How do you make it easier to um, remove the obstacles to to pregnant women getting promoted? And I think, you know, better training, better rules, better HR is part of it. But you need, but things like compulsory paternity leave, even if they aren't perfectly successful in all respects, are also a 
good step in that direction. They do much more harm than good. Right. Although I think before we have compulsory maternity leave, we should maybe just have maternity leave as well in the country. <laughs> fair. <Yeah>. Just fair. <laughs> All right. Let's go to Rwanda because Rwanda is, is, is a... Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. incredibly fascinating story to me um it's run by this essentially dictator called paul gagame he keeps on winning elections so he can claim (laughs) to be democratically elected but he does have this habit of throwing his political opponents in jail and not really letting letting them out um and completely cracking down on press freedom (laughs) there's no press freedom and like not to put too fine a point on it he's a genocidal warlord like he he um, (laughs) there's that (laughs) there's that like he invaded the country during the like rwandan genocide and committed a large number of major war crimes and he probably belongs in the hague and yet everyone seems to love him <laughs> and the economy is booming and he and and he's like a big favorite in the Davos set and he pals around with Tony Blair and the part of the reason why the populace of Rwanda keeps on voting for him is because you know they're getting richer it's there's no war going on anymore he's managed to bring peace to the country and like as a president in terms of his policies, I mean, throwing opponents in jail and, and, and not allowing a free press, not good policies, but in terms of the prosperity of the country, like, it's ac- it's actually an African success story in some respects. And so it's I'm just hugely conflicted. And I, I don't like him at all. And I kind of hate the fact that it's a success story because it would be much easier to just hate Rwanda if it wasn't. This is true. And bringing this into the story we're actually talking about today. Um, So right now, um, a lot of people are actually kind of cheering on Rwanda because they're standing up to the Trump administration because Rwanda has essentially wants to essentially institute a, a ban, basically, on the import importing secondhand clothing, which is a huge industry in Rwanda. And did you know that when you throw your secondhand clothes into those, you know, secondhand clothes bins that you find by the side of the road, that those secondhand clothes wind up in a big for-profit industry, which winds up sending them to countries which thereby are basically prevented from growing their own apparel industry. So I have slightly mixed feelings about this because on the one hand, I I like to see a country, especially an African country, standing up to the Trump administration. I do think it makes total sense that when you have a developing economy, you should be given more latitude to have more protectionist policies in order to grow nascent industries because that's what wealthy nations did to become wealthy. However, this particular ban, I wonder if it makes a lot of sense in the Rwandan context, because you 
actually have a large industry around the transportation organization, um, the alteration of these this clothing and the sale of this clothing. And you it's not just that you don't have much of a textile industry because of the secondhand clothing. It's also that you don't quite have the demand for the type of clothing that this textile industry would make because of the price point. I was wondering about that, too. I don't think of the t- of, of textiles as something that's going to, like, rocket a country to economic prosperity. I mean, clothes are very cheap. And then the article made a similar point that, that you did, basically. By doing this, it puts an actual industry out of business while betting on an industry that may or may not work out anyway. You might wind up just like getting clothes from China or something. And that's exactly what's already happening, is that they aren't putting a ban on the import of cheap Chinese clothing. And what you actually, they have, a, there are a number of articles where they have interviews with people in Rwanda who say they prefer the secondhand clothing because it's higher quality and there's more variety than the cheap goods that are being imported. And so... Two things. One, if this actually goes in, if this actually goes into practice, the what most likely is going to happen is that you're going to have Chinese companies that will set up factories, potentially in Rwanda, for clothing just for export, not for the Rwandan market. And then you're going to have smuggling of the clothing that the people actually want. <laughs> it it is a, a messy story, but we do need to mention the arsenal. <laughs> I was waiting for you to bring that up um, because obviously, like this is. The like while there's this big trade war going on, one minor trade skirmish, let's say, going on between Rwanda and and the United States, and I'm sure it's the number one most important thing that Donald Trump is thinking about every day. Um, there's a broader attempt by countries to improve their standing and reputation and visibility in the world, and the. But one of the ways they do this is they have these flag carrier airlines like Emirates. So if you are the UAE, you have Emirates Airlines and you subsidize it massively and you make it very glamorous. And everyone goes, oh, I love flying Emirates. It's a great airline. And everyone thinks more positively about your country. And then you advertise the um, airline on the shirts of Arsenal players and everyone in the world watches Arsenal because it's the English Premier League and, every, and it's the most popular league in the world and everyone sees this advertising and, and it's um, a very positive context for um, for you and you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars and apparently this is worthwhile. And we're used to seeing this in the context of the Emirates and now we're seeing it in the context of Rwanda where the Arsenal, ha- Arsenal players um, don't now just have emirates on the front of their shirts on their left sleeves they also have a little thing saying visit rwanda and this is rwanda's attempt to basically boost its um reputation in the world um hopefully to try and increase its tourism industry and get a bunch of people to like fly there to see gorillas but mostly i think just so that people think of rwanda as a tourist destination and not as a site of a massive genocide yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me because I was reading they don't maybe have, as a country, have the capacity for much of an increase in tourism at the moment anyway. But anything they could do to rebrand from genocide place to mm-hmm. gorilla place seems positive. And it seemed to me um, they were getting really criticized for spending. It was like $39 million they're spending on on football, soccer, whatever we call it. I don't know. Um, and they're getting really criticized. And that kind of seemed a little unfair to me. But Agreed. I mean, like countries 
let's potentially misspend money all the time. Yeah. And, and also, who knows that this is misspend? I don't know. I mean, I have no idea what the data is to show whether this actually has a good effect or not, but it makes some Although sense. Although it's hard to measure, right? And as mm-hmm. Emily says, if you're trying to justify it on an ROI basis through increased tourism, I mean, that's a lot of increased tourism you need to Rwanda. And... Um, you're probably not going to get it. The question is, like, does it also have positive branding effects for the country as a whole? And to what extent does having positive branding effects to the country as a whole actually help you? Yeah, I mean, I think having positive branding effects again, can only be good, especially in the Rwandan context, because of what most people think of when they hear the Rwanda. But I do wonder if just having, like, a patch on somebody's shirt that says, visit Rwanda, is really going to change anything. I think Maybe it already has. I mean, we're talking about this topic right now, and I suspect part of the reason Felix suggested it was because Rwanda has become more interesting in the back of your head. Maybe, maybe, maybe. because you saw it on that sleeve. I don't know. Maybe. 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 Um, <laughs> but it, it changes the conversation a little bit. It gets people talking about the country in a way that's not terrible, and that's got to be helpful in some way in marketing, like making your country into a brand, which is a weird thing to say. Like tourism is down to the United States because our brand is in the it's in the crapper right now, isn't it? It is down. It's not down <laughs> enormously, as anyone who visited you know Times Square recently can tell you. But it's but but then again, Times Square is a lot of. I mean, it matters. Too. The image matters, and mm-hmm. you could do. It doesn't hurt. I think what they're doing. Also, sorry, one last thing. I think it's important to, when you're talking about the branding of a country. You're also not just talking about tourism. You're also talking about investment. And development, and I think that mm-hmm. that's also another big deal mm-hmm. in terms of trying to change what people think of when they think of the country. And so, and so, here's my question for you, Anna, as you know, a hard-nosed Wall Street type. Um, if you were considering an investment in Rwanda, either a, a foreign, like a direct investment into industry, or even just like buying the bonds or something like that. Um, to what extent does it matter that the president is a genocidal war criminal dictator? Well, <laughs> oh god, I'm going to say the worst thing in the world, which is it depends on the price of the bonds. Um, <laughs> no, it's. I mean, like, look, <laughs> Daniel's cracking up in the booth. <laughs> <laughs> look, I mean it. It. I, Anytime you're talking about like whether something is like a good or bad investment, it always depends on the price. And so if, if you're looking at an investment in a frontier market, you're definitely going to consider the political risk of the administration. And But th- but that's the going forward risk. I guess what I'm asking is like looking backwards, does that matter? Like the fact that he did things twenty years ago, does that matter? No. You don't yeah, I, I really don't think it does. I mean, I really think that honestly the risk that people would care about a lot more is whether they thought he was going to like expropriate things. So basically, he's got away with. It. Yeah, I imagine. Let's let's have a numbers round. Who wants who wants a who's got a number? Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. What's your number? I really agonized about doing this as my number, but what the hell? What the hell? My number is thirty nine dollars. That is the price of the jacket Melania Trump uh. wore um, when she was going to visit um, She's a little migrant hunter. children. And the jacket, probably everyone knows, but on the back of the jacket, it said, I really don't care, do you? Um, and there's been you know, a spirited debate about exactly what she doesn't care about, but the symbolism of wearing 
that a jacket with that slogan to visit or these any poor jacket children. in Texas in the summer. <laughs> That's she took it off when she got there apparently, but then she put it back on. Um, well, planes are cold. And also the fact um, beyond the slogan that Melania Trump wore a $39 jacket is actually notable in and of itself. Oh, she was just hanging out in Zara in Washington, <laughs> D.C. in the bargain basement rack. No, I mean, this was clearly a very thought through, deliberate it's troll so attempt. Bizarre. And one does wonder why Melania, of all people, is like entering into this troll game. Because like you'd think she could manage to absent herself from it. She's actually been trolling us with her outfits for a while now. If you'll remember, she wore a white pantsuit, I believe, to the State of the Union, which everyone was like, is she, is she making a point about Hillary Clinton and stuff? You know, her white pantsuit. And, she oh, also yeah, wore that remember, pussy bow, remember? And, and do you remember the heels which she wore to Hurricane Harvey? Yes, and yeah. of course, the stilettos to Hurricane Harvey, so. <laughs> you know, I really think the answer is she just doesn't care, <laughs> like about anything. Yeah, but uh, she fi- she was just telling the truth. <laughs> exactly, back like, of that jacket. She yeah, does she's not like care. she wanted to tell us that she doesn't care, so she wore a jacket saying, "I really don't care." That's and we're all I like, "What does she mean?" <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, my number is nine, which is the number of years now, officially, that the current economic boom has been going on. That's how long we've had since the last recession. That makes it the second longest economic expansion in American history. Um, When was the other one? The other one was the um, Greenspan boom, which ended in 2001. And obviously, that should make us feel much better. But the, we're, it's very, very long in the tooth. We have we are now officially in a nine-year-old expansion. Yeah. Although I would question how much of that is an expansion in the financial markets and how much of that is really an expansion in the real economy. I understand if you want to look technically in terms of... We're, we're looking at GDP. Recession. We're not looking no, at I under, markets. No, I understand that. But you have a lot of people in the market saying that the actual real economic recovery is not as old as what some of the data and what the markets would suggest. Okay. So what's your number? My number is $12.76. That is the last share price I saw for GE. Uh, R.I.P. Yeah. (laughs) We remember GE. Poor GE. Yeah, fell out of the Dow this week, and because its share price was like this is like part of we we've talked about this on this show before, but like the ridiculousness of the Dow and how it's based on like nominal share price. Oh, but- it's incredibly stupid. It's I mean, actually, it's interesting because GE was replaced with Walgreens, which has not a very big company by Dow standards. No, and if you're looking at like consumer staples, and you're like, which company do I think of when I think of consumer staples? I'm pretty sure most people think of Amazon, but you can't possibly put Amazon in the Dow because their share price is like seventeen fifty. And and yeah, but I was I you know I think most people I think the the loss of GE from the Dow didn't come as much of a surprise. It's kind of no. been like bumping along unhappily for a while now. But I do think that most people thought that if and when it did get kicked out, it would probably be replaced by Facebook. And Facebook is like you know a pretty obvious Dow component, and it wasn't. Yeah, I think that somewhat had to do with the sectors in terms of what they wanted to have the sector balance, but agreed. It's silly. So I think that's it. Um, if you have any suggestions for like how on earth we managed to get people to stop talking about the Dow, which is a completely pointless, it's not even an index, it's an average, um, do send them in to slatemoney at slate.com. And we are going to have a Slate Plus as well. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the CEO of Intel. And 
Do listen next week as well when we're going to have finally, yes, the Germany edition, which we have been promising for a while. This is going to be a good one with Adam Tews from Columbia. So many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing this one. Um, that's it for us this week, and thank you for listening to Sleep 